podcast contains graphic content. Your discretion is advised. Some report of a what appears to be an explosion. It sounded like an explosion. Northbound on one was between Chatfield and Kent Carroll. The fire department's going to find sitting there in cool blood. We all got under the desk and, and then they just started coming in the library and opening fire and shooting out bombs. I just keep thinking that this does not happen at our school and that I'm going to wake up and this is going to be over because yeah, not in Columbine, you know, it happens in some other school somewhere else. It doesn't happen Columbine High School Massacre was a school shooting and attempted bombing that occurred on April 20, 1999 at Columbine High School in Columbine, Colorado. Twenty years ago, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold walked into their Colorado high school armed with a Tech-9, sawed-off shotguns, and an arsenal of explosives and killed 13 people. largest mass murder on school grounds at the time. Yet much of this, the discussion of that time is still relevant today in a world where the words school and shooting are too often associated with one another. Since then, what happened at the high school has become iconic. Yet in his book, Columbine, journalist Dave Cullen turns much of what we believe about the crime on its head. His narrative style of portrayal of events helps readers understand the circumstances leading up to the shooting, the tragedy felt by those who were impacted, and the mishandling of the event on a national scale. Had he wanted to conform to the cliche of the story told by the media, Cullen would have written his book in this sort of way. He would have started his tale 48 hours before Eric Harris and Dylan Clevel's notorious killing spree stopped the frame just before they fired their guns, and then spooled back to the very beginning, with promise of trying to explain how the two boys got to this twisted path. But he doesn't. As Cullen eventually writes, there had been no trigger, at least none that would be satisfied to horrified outsiders, grieving parents, or anyone in between. Instead, he organizes the story as intertwined, flipping back and forth between the grieving after the fact and the minds of the killers before the shooting. Three major topics emerge which, we'll put, which we will put our focus on for the remainder of the podcast. Number one, the tendencies of troubled individuals. Number two, the use of grieving for, for ulterior motives. And lastly, the slow process of healing in the community. These topics will be covered through the analysis of characters and quotes within the book, and the applications of lessons that Dave Cullen tries to portray to a contemporary landscape in which school shootings are at the forefront of social and political discussion. Let's start off by discussing the traits of each killer and how together they culminated to create a recipe for disaster. Eric Harris, the psychopathic ringleader of the Columbine shooting, kept meticulous journals for a year and a half prior to Columbine, planning the attack and describing his motive for carrying it out, his burning, undying hatred of the human race and his desire for total annihilation. An overachiever in school and a charming young man with an active social life, Eric was not the bullied outcast the media attempted to cast both him and Dylan Klebold as. Rather, Eric, according to Dave Cullen and the Columbine investigator, Dwayne Fusilier, was a full-blown psychopath.
a charming but cunning and manipulative individual incapable of experiencing empathy for another human being. The second of the Columbine killers, Dylan Klebold, was a born genius, who despite a sensitive disposition, experienced explosions of rage, suicidal tendencies, a disdain for the zombie-like human race, and a suggestibility upon which the psychopathic Eric Harris consistently preyed. Dylan did not share Eric's desire for total annihilation, though he at times gleefully parroted back Eric's dreams of laying waste to all of humanity. He was torn between love and suicide. He felt that girls especially rejected him at every turn, and he used alcohol to soothe the pain of his loneliness. It can be said that Eric tipped Dylan over the edge when it came to suicide and killing. On page 164, Cullen writes, Eric totally rocked on the missions. Dylan enjoyed them too. He liked the camaraderie especially. But the missions were brief diversions. They were not making Dylan happy. In fact, Dylan was miserable. In this phrase, in this passage, we can see that the missions continue. Eric loves them, and Dylan enjoys the camaraderie, but the missions are not enough to make the miserable Dylan feel any lasting happiness. Eric and Dylan are shown to be in cahoots together early on in their high school careers. Yet though they are working together, they have different motivations for and different responses to the mischief that they are creating. We get some further insight into Dylan's condition by reading his journal. And Colin writes that Dylan writes, I don't know what I do wrong with people, he wrote. It's like they're set out to hate and insult me. I never know what to say or do. He had tried. He had brought in Chips Ahoy cookies to win them over. What exactly would it take? Dylan was lonelier than lonely in this instance. He felt cut off from humanity and believed most people to be annoying. He was in pain and nobody understood him. He was consumed by thoughts of suicide and drank alcohol to quell the pain. He envisioned his journal as a stately tome and entitled it Existences a Virtual Book, from which this passage was pulled. There's not even a hint of violence in the early pages of the journal. Rather, Dylan spoke of being on a spiritual quest, longing to stay sober, stop making fun of younger kids, and stop playing video games. Dylan was clearly trying to get away and move on from the suicidal tendencies. While Cullen portrays Eric as a full-blown psychopath throughout the story with sadistic tendencies, he seems more empathetic towards Dylan. As Cullen delves into Dylan's past, it becomes clear that Dylan was initially just a sensitive boy who suffered greatly and felt entirely lost in the world, and he was pushed on by Eric. Eric is a true orchestrator of their violent plans, but what pushes him on to do so? It's his psychopathic brain that craves killing and having a pawn like Dylan on his side only helps his cause. We learn about the traits of his psychopathy when Eric boldly lies to his diversion coach and writes a seemingly heartfelt apology letter to the van owner. But on page 260, we find out that, quote, but he wrote that strictly for effect, Fusilier said. That was complete manipulation. At almost the exact same time, he wrote down his real feelings in his journal. Isn't America supposed to be the land of the free? How come if I'm free, I can't reply to stooping, stupid effing dumb s from his possessions if he leaves him sitting in the front seat of his effing man out in plain sight in the middle of effing nowhere on a fry effing day night natural selection effer should be shot eric betrayed no signs of contempt to andrea sanchez in her notes she remarked on eric's deep remorse as part of their diversion program the boys are required to write letters of apology to the owner of the van eric's is deeply contrite and remorseful he knew exactly what empathy looked like in his journal, at almost the exact same time, Eric writes an angry rant, declaring that the owner of the van deserved to be shot for leaving his belongings in plain sight. 
citing natural selection in all caps. Eric hides his contempt from Andrea Sanchez and brags privately about his lies to her. Eric's many manipulations of those around him continue to go off without a hitch. His psychopathic brain enables him to lie and deceive skillfully and without remorse. A Jeffco judge doesn't believe that the offense that the boys do against the van is the boys first, though they both, both them and their parents claim it is. But the judge is impressed by their deferential behavior at the hearing, and he approves them for diversion. Fourteen months later, Colin writes, the judge will, quote, lament how convincing the boys had been and how deceptive. Eric and Dylan managed to deceive everyone who is in a position to hold them accountable for their actions. The system fails partly because Eric and Dylan are so good at jamming it. This shows us that the boys were leaning through violent tendencies, and they could get away with most anything. Not even their parents, not even the judge, could detect their slyness. Colin goes on to discuss how their two polar identities and characteristics work together. He says that, Day, quote, day after day, for more than a year, Dylan juiced Eric with erratic jolts of excitement. They played the killing out again and again. The cries, the screams, the smell of burning flesh. Eric savored the anticipation. Another psychological phenomenon within the Columbine attack was the presence of a dyad, a murderous pair who feed on one another. In this quote, we can see that Dylan juiced Eric on, and the other way around, too. These partnerships think Bonnie and Clyde, tend to be asymmetrical. The dyad of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold was. Eric was a ling ringleader and a psychopath, and Dylan was an angry, erratic depressive who needed anybody to hang on to. Cullen introduces the term dyad late in the book, so to speak, in order to allow the audience to accept the term as a truth, having witnessed Eric and Dylan's toxic and symbiotic friendship evolve up to this point. There are certain steps we can take in school and society after learning from Dylan and Eric's example. Eric and Dylan go through a series of traumatic events. Colin writes that they don't snap, they smolder in mental health deterioration. That is why it's necessary for us to have screening to identify teen depression, not only to prevent shootings, but to better dropout rates, addictions, car accidents, and general misery. Teen depression is the great unlearned lesson of Columbine. Eric and Dylan reached out for help, but the detection of their mental conditions was far from proper. Even if you're not a mental health expert, one lesson we can draw from getting inside the minds of Eric and Dylan is that we can always be there for the people around us and show them that we care. Often, such a sentiment can be the difference and turning point in the mental state of a person. In an American school system that offers unbounded freedom to students, many fail to find their niche, and it is the job of teachers, students, and families to step in and show support to a fellow community member. These boys were trying to reach out through their journal, or through Eric's website, but they had no ready audience. Imagine the difference it would have made if someone was there to listen to their complaints and stories, and to show them that they belonged. This episode is brought to you by the Columbine Lounge. All ages and walks of life welcome. Come in and get a free drink when you electric slide across our carpet. The Columbine Lounge. Fun for all and all for fun. 
Part 2. Opportunism in the Wake of Grief The greed of our society is seen through the use of Columbine by different groups to accelerate their own agenda, without much consideration of the impact on those who are grieving. This is seen through the actions of the media to completely mischaracterize the shooting, and through the role of religious groups in trying to gain followers through the story of a victim. Both of these situations disregard the reality of what actually happened at Columbine and undermine the feelings of those who are experiencing grief. However, the political opportunism of the gun control issue is rightful in its relevance to the Columbine case and provides an example of a healthy byproduct of grief, change. Cullen tries to dismantle many misconceptions about Columbine, chief among which comes from the media reporting, which set many ideas about the shooting in stone after the first few hours of reporting. Cullen writes about the initial reporting saying that, Quote, one hour into the Columbine horror, news stations were informing the public that two or more gunmen were behind it. Two hours in, the Trenchcoat Mafia were to blame. The TCM were portrayed as a cult of homosexual goths in makeup, orchestrating a bizarre death pact for the year 2000. The Trenchcoat Mafia was mythologized and continues to color the way the public thinks about Columbine. Though, quote, we remember Columbine as a pair of outcast goths from the TCM snapping and tearing through their school hunting down jocks, Cullen insists that none of that is true, and neither did the attacks have any connection to Marilyn Manson, Hitler's birthday, or the desire to slaughter Christians. Though no reputable sources or experts on the case believe any of these myths anymore, much of the public still does, and Cullen attempts to explain why. The Trenchcoat Mafia and the whole Goths vs. Jock story provided an easy and intriguing explanation for the media. The root of the media's errors, Cullen says, was the mythologizing of untruths, such as the TCM, and the shooters plan to sink their attacks with Hitler's birthday. By focusing on details that would be sensational in their own right if they were true, and sensationalizing them even further, the media created a firestorm of intrigue and confusion, and clouded what actually happened during Columbine. The actions of the media and the overwhelming support of their claims from the public are in essence similar to the events described in The Crucible by Arthur Miller. The witch trials grow in popularity and help the courts maintain authority in a similar way to which the myth of the TCM brings more attention to the Columbine incident and therefore more airtime and revenue for the media. In both instances, the ulterior motives of those in power work to create injustice as to the truth behind what actually happens. In the case of the Crucible, this is detrimental in causing deaths, and in the case of Columbine, it causes a national fervor to outcast, quote-unquote, outcast groups, instead of pinpointing the real issue of mental health care and gun control within schools. Many groups used Columbine to gain attention, including the Evangelical Church, who extended the story of Cassie Bernal professing her faith in the face of a gun and turned her into a martyr and an example for the general public to receive salvation by joining the church. While this story turned out to be misconceived, it showed how groups like the church saw what was best in their own interest when it came to the massacre. The carpenter who built the makeshift memorial shows another example of a person who tried to use Columbine for clout. Dave Cullen writes, quote, The world forgot the carpenter. Few had noted his name. Most never knew what a huckster he was, or the lies he told, or the pain he inflicted. But they remember his crosses fondly. They recall the comfort that they found. The carpenter who had installed the crosses returns and removes the remaining 13. He then builds a set of new crosses, but apologized profusely and publicly and promises not to wreck them. But then, he goes on to milk the celebrity the crosses earned him for years.
and Brian Rohrbra denounces him publicly as an opportunist and a despicable person. But many mourners remember the crosses. Most have forgotten the carpenter altogether. Members of the Jefferson County community struggle with how to mourn the Columbine massacre. The killers are seen by some as troubled boys and by others as satanic murderers destined to burn in hell. Opportunism is at play in this passage, as the carpenter who made the crosses attempts to edge himself into the limelight. By highlighting the fact that though many remember the crosses, hardly anyone remembers the carpenter himself, Cullen denounces self-seeking opportunism, displays the ways in which collective or communal grief outweigh the desire for spectacle and individualism. But not all of the movements that came from the event were damaging to the community. The political opportunism and the arguments for gun control showed the resilience of the community to make a difference. One of the ways of coping with despair was through action, and such was the case with Tom Mauser, a parent of one of the victims of the shooting. Cullen says that Tom Mauser had been energized at the NRA protest and devoted himself to the cause, ultimately leading to, quote, the measure would pass by a two-to-one margin. The gun show loophole was closed in Colorado. It was defeated in Congress. Political opportunism emerges along with the reports. Efforts toward gun control are pushed by Tom Mauser, the father of one of the victims, but no significant national gun control legislation will be enacted in response to Columbine. The government continues to fail in the wake of Columbine as gun control, a major issue in the massacre, is sidestepped and ignored. While political opportunism emerges, it does not gain as much traction as things like the twisted stories of the media, simply due to its controversial stance. Despite the clear-cut danger of the gun control loophole law, it fails to go anywhere nationally due to the limited effects of Columbine's aftershocks. It's inevitable that people always see what's in it for themselves, but we need to recognize that a community needs time and space to properly heal. The ulterior motives of groups like the media can often cloud the judgment of victims and survivors, and it can motivate actions among the consumers of the media. The media focuses on guns and mental health, but fails to recognize itself as a major factor in handing killers the mic. The media has to rethink how they report shootings and terrorist attacks, and they need to take a spotlight off of killers and put the focus on victims. The media should sacrifice ratings in favor of changing the landscape of coverage. As for religion, it provides a source of healing only if the motivation of a religious group is to help and not bolster their own agenda. Providing help for the sake of growing can be detrimental to those who are suffering. And while this was largely avoided during Columbine, the story of Cassie Bernal reminds us of all that could possibly go wrong when you have the wrong intentions. As for gun control, we cannot continue to bring the discussion up every time another shooting happens, because lives are being lost just to prove a point. It is common sense for the government to realize that weapons should not up in the hands of troubled, end up in the hands of troubled individuals like Dylan or Eric. Columbine brought this issue to the forefront through the actions of people like Tom Mauser, but we still face the issue to this day. And it is up to the people of the United States to rally behind the political opportunism and make something good come about from the countless deaths of those who could have been saved through a simple law. The interests of people emerge at the forefront throughout the second theme. And it's important to recognize the good and the bad that, we, that can come about from the devastation so that we can take caution and learn from the past when we hear about violence and world or mass murder or killing of any sort is far too common. last part of the podcast, we mentioned the media putting more focus on the victims and survivors over the killers. Dave Cullen practices what he preaches by spending time focusing on the victims and survivors, because this book is just as much about the journey of a community in pain as it is about the events that unfolded during the day of Columbine and 
the days leading up to it. The use of Patrick Island as a symbol for the recovering community and the descriptions of community recovery help provide hope to anybody who has experienced long-lasting pain. Cullen lets them know that it is okay to hurt and that they will get through it. The iconic video of Patrick Ireland crawling out of the library in a violently injured state made him a symbol of the resilience of the Columbine community. At the start of the grieving journey, there was little to no hope for Patrick in achieving his dreams as he seems to have lost much of his mental capability and his ability to walk. However, as time passes, Patrick gains strength and hope. Halfway through his journey, Cullen states, quote, the bars were tough because his right arm was as feeble as his leg, but together he gathered the strength for each step. While Patrick Ireland struggles to regain movement of his legs, he's rebuilding the frayed signals in his brain. He makes steady progress each day, and within a few weeks, he's on his feet. It will take him months to hold a pen without shaking, but he is on his way to normalcy. Cullen also mentions another injured student, Anne Marie Hotchhalter. He says that, quote, eventually she grew more, more lucid and asked whether she could walk again. Well, no, a nurse told her. After six weeks, she joined Patrick at the Craig Rehab Center. After weeks of, of being delirious on morphine with a ventilator and feeding tube keeping her alive, Hotchalter finally asks the nurse whether she'll ever walk again, and the nurse tells her she won't. Once again, Cullen uses Patrick Ireland's journey of recovery as a barometer for where the larger Columbine community is in their recovery process, showing that they are further along than from when Columbine had just happened and they had begun grieving. But Anne Marie Hotchalter is stalled in her recovery and will have to cope with the injury she sustained for the rest of her life. Her journey, too, mirrors some of the survivors and witnesses of Columbine. So, Dave Cullen shows us that it's okay to be on different stages of recovery and grief. Cullen also talks about the sense of community that had to form in order for the community to heal altogether. School officials know that the atmosphere on the morning of the first day coming back will mean everything going forward. They want students to return feeling as if they've made a clean break. Administrators consult with psychologists and grief experts and come up with an elaborate ritual for the reopening known as Take Back the School. Colin says on page 271 that for the ceremony to have impact, they needed an adversary to overcome. And the more tangible and odious the adversary, the better it was. An easy choice came up, the media. In order for the ritual to have resonance, the community needs an adversary to overcome. Picking the adversary it was an easy choice in the media. As local news outlets continued to run Columbine stories daily, the students lashed out against the media that has made their lives hell. At the Take Back the School event, parents and neighbors form a human shield against the press, quote, a human ball of shame. Because of the vacuum that has emerged in Columbine due to the death of the shooters in the attack and the resulting absence of tangible place to lay the blame, administrators decide, administrators decide to make the media into the enemy, and their plan is effective. They know that they must create a sense of community at the school at any cost and decide that focusing on keeping the media out will be the most effective thing that they can do. While nobody wants to go through the traumatic experience that the families and survivors of the Combine incident went through, understanding their lengthy process of recovery helps us empathize and provide support to those who are in need of it. Colin himself goes through depression for a long time after working on the Columbine case for 10 years. He's bolstered, however, by the strength of the families of the victims, such as Coney Sanders, who gets back up after the news of every new shooting knocks her down. She works with violent criminals now and musters tremendous empathy for the enemy each day, knowing it is the only way to reach them. 
Cullen is inspired as we should be by survivors. The families of victims have been able to overcome their debilitating grief and use their pain for good. An attempt to empathize with the enemy has been Cullen's life work too, and he takes strength from the fact that he is not alone in this. And that, perhaps, this is the answer to combating violence and hate throughout the world. Dave Cullen's Columbine is a roller coaster of emotions, and it teaches us the value of empathy, and it sheds light onto the collapsed systems of our society. It's a story of resilience in the face of adversity. So I'm going to leave you with this news clip of Patrick Ireland. The biggest thing I took away from all this is just attitude. The only things that we can control in life are our attitude and our effort. And so that if we live each day with the attitude of being a victor rather than a victim,